text, your Bible open to Ephesians chapter 6. We continue talking about um, the armor of God. Uh, we were working through Ephesians, and then we took time off to look at the Christmas message, the promise of the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. And so now we're back. Um, I was doing some sermon research for the past week in Florida, and uh, I have learned a lot about fantasy. I mean, it, 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 does God have a sense of humor or what? The first sermon back after going to Disney World is on truth. And so I went to a place called Magic Kingdom. <laughs> you know, uh, the whole thing is, is fantasy. And, and I, can, I can tell you, and, and it's sort of an inf infectious fantasy. Because um, you go to this place and suddenly you're much nicer than you've ever been before. Anybody been there? You, you, you find this happening? You, you, you get on the little shuttle buses and it takes you to the park and you get off the crowded little shuttle bus where the, where the driver was 20 minutes late picking you up and all those other things. And as you get off the bus, you say, thank you, have a nice day. How do they do that to us? And I guess anybody who can invent a, a talking mouse can, can get anything out of us. But uh, we're, we're standing in line for like an hour and a half, two hours for a, a little four-minute ride, and we're acting like we enjoy this. You know, this is what I wanted to do with all my, my vacation time. I wanted to stand in line. And we're, you're nice to the people in front of you and behind you, even though they annoy the stew out of you. I mean, we're, we're just suddenly much nicer people. That's how we know it's fantasy land. Um, and, but I don't know how they, they do that. Uh, but they, they basically create a, a whole world in which all these things that are not true, like animatronics and the buildings. Or you, you look at the buildings, you know they're 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 just facades. They're they're somebody's imagination and all that. But you get in the spirit of it, and you start living this little fantasy where the truth is sort of negotiable. Now, you ready for this? And that's what Paul's talking about here in the book of uh, of Ephesians, because we're going to get at uh, the, the first part of the armor of God, which is to put on the belt of truth. And that has to do with living in, in the truth of the, of the uh, gospel. Now, there are um, most folks, when they approach this idea of the armor of God, they'll, they'll give you long, extensive lectures about the various pieces of armor on a Roman soldier. Uh, we'll look up the eight different Latin words for belt, you know, broad belt, skinny belt, sword belt, belt buckle, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm not going to do that because I really don't think it matters. I really don't. Uh, I think Paul's just saying, put on the armor of God and, okay, you know, belt of truth. Truth can also be a sword. Truth can be a very good offensive weapon. Truth can be a very good defensive weapon. It can be a very good shield. So I don't think that the particularities of the, um, uh, of the particular part of the armor that's assigned to one of the, the Christian virtues is necessarily significant, but I do want to look at the, the various components of the armor of God. And uh, just to give us sort of a, a sense of how I want to approach this passage, look with me at uh, verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Against the schemes of the devil. Now, if we were still reading King James, it would have said the wiles of the devil. But we don't use the word wiles or wily anymore. There's two times that we use the word wily. You know what they are? What's the first one? Wiley Coyote. You know what the second one is? 
veteran baseball pitcher. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> you're the only one who got it. Nobody got it first service. But it's, it's a wily pitcher, you know. It's a veteran who knows how to strike people out because he doesn't have much stuff, but he can trick you, and he's, he's a wily veteran. But other than that, we don't use the word wily. Scheme is a good word. Tactics of the devil. Uh, so that Put on the armor of God so that you can withstand the way the devil attacks you in your spiritual walk. Um, now, what that means is that everything that Paul talks about as being a part of the, of the armor that we're to have on has a counterpart in the schemes of the devil. For instance, uh, if we're talking about the belt of truth, put on the belt of truth, um, that uh, uh, what we're combating here is the fact that Satan, preeminently, is a liar. He, that's, ju that's just what he does. He's a liar. In fact, the first time we encounter him in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, uh, Satan is talking to Eve and says, well, Eve, what about this tree thing? Didn't God tell you you can't eat ever again? And uh, Eve said, no, it's not my dietitian. He's God. And what he said was, you're not listening. The jokes are going to go right by if you don't listen. <laughs> but uh, she said, no, what, what God said was that we can eat anything we want except for this tree here. We, we can't even touch it. Because if we do, we'll die. And Satan said, you won't die. God's not telling you the truth. God's jealous of you. He doesn't want you to be like God. He doesn't want you to know the, 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 the difference between good and evil. God doesn't want you to have this exalted knowledge. God wants to keep you down. And when you eat of that tree, you're not going to die. And the whole problem of the human race starts off when Satan tells a lie and Eve believes him and Adam just falls into step with it. So it's, Satan is a, is a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a distorter of things. Uh, in the wilderness of temptation, it, when he was speaking to Jesus. He said, you know, uh, you're the Messiah, right? And, and being the Messiah, that means you sort of get a free ride through life, doesn't it? I mean, look at these uh, stones. You can turn them into bread. By the way, I know how to turn bread into stones. <laughs> I was trying to make Texas toast last night. Well, but that's another story. But, but he said, but if you're Messiah, you get a free ride. You can turn these stones into bread and never be hungry again. And he is the Messiah, and he can turn stones into bread. And in fact, he can multiply loaves and fishes and feed 5,000 at a time. In fact, he can do these things, but that's not what being Messiah is about. Satan was trying to distort the, the calling of the Messiah, the path of Messiah, and say, you know, Jesus, think about this with, with leaving God out a little bit of it. He was lying. And Jesus, of course, said, well, you, you're sort of confused here, Satan, because uh, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then and Satan says, well, yeah, but you're the Messiah, and that means all the world should worship you, but you don't need to do that cross thing. You know, yeah, you, you think the cross is necessary, but in point of fact, it isn't. All you have to do is worship me. Now, that'll be a lot easier. To worship me, you just need to, you know, maybe sing a few songs, have a nice feeling, you know, raise your hand, and, and, you know, clap maybe a little bit, you know, have a nice emotional experience. You can worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. There's a couple of lies going on there. First, all the kingdoms of the earth may or may not belong to Satan. I'm not, I'm not sure they do. You know, everything belongs to God. But the other part of it is the whole point of Messiah is to come and die on the cross for our sins. See, Satan was distorting that. He was trying to get, get Jesus to think out, uh, uh, apart from the truth of God and to think in a, 
in a distorted way about things. And, and, and of course, Jesus, you worship the, the Lord God, and him only shall thou serve. And then uh, Satan said, yeah, but, you know, as the Messiah, God's sort of beholden to you. God has to do what you, what you tell him to do if you cash in on one of his promises. And he said that if you jump off the top of the temple, that uh, his angels will attend to you, and you're not going to dash your foot against a stone, you're not going to fall, this will be an amazing thing. I mean, it'll make, it, it'll go viral, Jesus, if you would just, you know, throw yourself off the, off, the, uh, off the temple and let God save you because he promised he would. And that's what God has to do. And Jesus pointed out that, you know, you don't test God that way. You don't, you don't fool around with God like that because that's a distortion of what the sovereignty of God means and the faithfulness of God. So in the wilderness of temptation, Satan distorting, Satan lying, Satan constantly trying to, uh, to get Jesus to, to look at the world and his, and his role as Messiah in a way other than what God intended. See, Satan does that for us. He, he's constantly lying. Uh, he's distorting the truth. Um, he, he's telling one of the greatest lies he tells today is that truth is relative. You know, the truth is just, just a matter of what you think the truth is. I mean, you may... Um, uh, uh, you know, you may look at the truth and, and you don't sort of like it, you'd like it to be something else. Well, that can be true for you. You have your truth, I have my truth. No, but truth is just what you want it to be. This sort of started with Immanuel Kant and the decline of metaphysics. Aren't you glad I'm not going to lecture on that one? But it, but it shows up more in the uh, interpretation of English literature. That's how it comes into our culture through, uh, really through English departments that look at literature and say, what does this story mean? And you look at it and say, well, it means this to me. Hey, that's great. And somebody else says, well, it means this to me. Hey, that's what it means. And if the author walks into the room and says, no, this is what the story means, you're allowed to say, no, that's not what it means to me. It may have meant that to you when you wrote it, but it means this to me when I read it. Are you following me on this? Yeah. It has a name, it's called Structuralism. And it was actually invented, if you will, as a way to interpret Russian fairy tales. And, uh, um, not, and, and for a while, it was like a big deal in interpreting the Bible. Still is in some circles. But the idea is just what it means to you. It's sort of what we have going on in our, in our country today. What does the Constitution mean? What does it mean to you? It's this living, breathing document. Uh, and all kinds of things are going through my mind. By the way, if it's a living, breathing document and the truth doesn't matter, it's just, just what, the, what you think the, the Constitution means, then any ruling you make based on that interpretation means whatever you think it means. You know, I'm, I'm getting far afield here. But anyway, uh, to, to come back, um, but the idea is that truth is relative. Folks, truth is not relative. You know, truth is absolute. Now, we may not know the truth, but we know enough of the truth. We have the word of God and that gives us enough of the truth. We're still uh, growing in our understanding and growing in how it applies to our lives. But we know that that's where the truth abides. And so the, the, the truth is absolute because God is absolute and God is truth. And so truth is, it's not relative. Now we keep coming to better and better understandings of, of the truth, but the truth is not relative. So Satan is a liar. And what he'll be doing in your life is coming at you again and again and again, trying to distort your view of the world or lie to you about the view of, you, uh, of the world, lie to you about God, distort God, use half-truths about God 
And that is the scheme of the devil. And in uh, combat against that scheme of the devil, put on the belt of truth. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Let's put that in front of us as we read the passage again. This starts in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And we'll read through the first part of verse uh, uh, 18. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, I pray that you would guide our footsteps, that whether we walk through the desert places of life or through the lush green forest, whether we walk on the mountaintops or through the valleys, whether our path is smooth and straight or whether it is narrow and binding. Father, I pray you would guide our footsteps so that in every place of life, in every journey, we would discover the footprints of Christ and walk in his footsteps. Father, I pray you would guide our footsteps so that we would be found obedient, that we would be found faithful in our commitment to you. Father, that we would be found as those who look like Jesus in our word and in our conduct. Father, I pray you would guide our footsteps so that every step we take would bring us closer to you as every step we take makes us look more like Jesus. Father, I pray you would guide us, and I pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. I can say that the older I get, and I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to know I'm getting older, but the older I get, the less I am surprised about temptation. I'm still surprised about when temptation comes, that it'll just sort of sneak up and ambush you or just leap out of the bushes and, and you know, a thought, an action, an, an attitude or something will just sort of... Uh, take you by surprise, but the fact of temptation surprises me less and, and less. I think a lot of us, when, when we become uh, believers in Christ, as a young Christian, we, we come to Christ, we ask Jesus into our heart as our Lord and Savior, and we gain the victory, and we're done. You know, the, the victory's won, that's it, we're on our way to heaven, just full blast, full bore, and then we get attacked and assaulted along the way. And as you grow older in the faith, you realize that as believers in Jesus Christ, we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and the victory is won. And then the battle begins. See, Satan will leave you alone as long as you're leaving Christ alone. Satan doesn't really care about you. He just hates God. He doesn't really care whether you're happy or not. He doesn't care whether you're prosperous or not. He just hates God. 
And as long as you're apart from God, as long as you're not loving God and living for God, Satan will pretty much leave you alone. You'll get the kinds of things that happen in, in life, you know, illnesses come your way, setbacks and things like that. But in terms of the spiritual attack, Satan pretty much leaves you alone if you're not headed towards God, if you're not loving God. But the moment you love God, the moment you see Jesus, you fall in love with him, you invite him into your heart to live for Christ, then Satan attacks. He attacks because he can't hurt God, but he wants to hurt those who love God. Because he can't make God any less God, but he can try to make those who belong to God less godly. And so when you come to Christ, the battle really begins. That's why before we get to chapter 6 in Ephesians, we worked our way through chapters 1 through 3 where Paul sort of gives an exposition of the Christian gospel in chapter 1. He says, you know, the Father is the one who chose us. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us that, that our belonging to God is not based on who we are or our goodness or our achievement, but it's based solely upon the richness of God's grace and mercy toward us, that he chose us. And then the Son came and redeemed us. He died for us. That the Son of God, Jesus Christ, went to the cross and there he took the death that we deserve and our death was placed upon him and his righteousness was placed upon us and we were bought back from the slavery of sin and he redeemed us. And the Holy Spirit sealed us, guarantees us, assures us that the victory is ours. We may fight the battle and it may go on for a long time, but ultimately the victory is his and we will be with him everlasting. And so we have this, this assurance of God's work in our salvation. But if, if you turn back to chapter 2 just for a second, if that's in front of you, and I hope it is. But in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul sort of says, now here's how that becomes real in our lives. By the fullness of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are redeemed, we are saved, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son into the kingdom of light. But in verse 8 he says, and that's what we mean when we say, for by grace you have been saved. Some important tiny words here, the prepositions, pay attention to them. It is by grace that you are saved. And it is through faith that that grace is appropriated into our lives. God's gracious work in Christ becomes real in our lives when we open our hearts and we simply uh, ask Jesus in as our Lord and Savior. And so through faith, by grace, we are saved. And then see what happens. This and okay, we'll let people debate what it means. Essentially, salvation by grace through faith, all of this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. You can't brag about yourself. You know, if you fall in love with Jesus, you don't want to brag about yourself, do you? You want to brag about him. You want to boast on Jesus. So it's that, we, that no one can boast in themselves. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Those are the three words. By grace, through faith, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Last week, Randy reminded us that we are called to be light in the world. And he cited that verse for us in the Sermon on the Mount. So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works. And what? And give glory to the Father in heaven. That's the whole idea is that the glory returns to the Father. So we're saved by the grace of the Father through faith. And even that's the gift of God for good works. And that's to glorify God. Now, that is essentially the gospel presented in a very short order. And so Paul says, I want you to put on this belt of truth. Now, he could mean just truth in general. I want you to live by whatever the truth happens to be, scientific truth, mathematical truth, you know, um, whatever the truth is. And, and you know, the truth keeps changing. Scientific truth keeps changing. I can prove it to you. Are eggs good for you? I mean, last week they were bad. The week before that they were good. The week before that they were bad. I mean, it keeps going back and forth. If you like eggs, eat them. That's a word of prophecy that I was just kidding. No. But anyway. But Paul isn't talking about just, just you know, live according to the best science of the day. He says live by the gospel truth. Put on this gospel truth that God sent his son. We killed him. God raised him. And now by the grace of God through faith, we can be brought into the family of God that we might live a life that points glory to the Father. That's what we're called to do. And that's why Satan will attack us right there at that point of the gospel. Sometimes Satan out and out lies. He's, oh, none of it's true. Don't believe that. A lot of times Satan um, uh, attacks the truth of the gospel by way of distortion or half-truths. For instance, part of this is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is his reaction to our sin. When we sin, we deserve judgment and condemnation. When we sin, we deserve darkness and death. When we sin, we deserve the wrath of God. And so what Satan will say is, you know you deserve the wrath of God, and you do. You know that when you sin, God's judgment falls. You know that when you sin, the holiness of God cannot abide that sin, and so you you must suffer the wrath of God. Now, folks, there is something called the wrath of God, and it is visited upon our sin. We deserve the wrath of God. By the way, the wrath of God, being the, the, the doctrine of the wrath of God, is actually a doctrine of the grace of God. You realize how loving and kind and gracious God is to tell you, to tell us what it is that's wrong with us. He's under no obligation to do that. He could have just let us go in our ignorance and march you to hell. But rather he tells us, this upsets me. This makes me angry. This is my wrath upon sin. But what the devil will do is say, you know, there's the wrath of God. And that's all there is. Some of you may have grown up in churches where all you ever heard was the wrath of God. Every time you turned around, judgment, condemnation. You were never good enough. You were never worthy. And the distortion of that truth is that that's all that was said. So you grew up thinking that God was just an angry God who was, who was just poised and ready to annihilate you the first chance he got. And that's a lie. Because our God is a gracious God. He's a wrath-filled God towards our sin. His wrath falls upon sinners justly. But he is a God who forgives sinners. See, the other part of that, that, that Satan will distort, he'll only tell half the gospel is, well, you know, God is a good, gracious, kind, and loving God. You know, God is just for you. God wants you to be happy. 
God wants you to uh, just prosper and be healthy and wealthy and, and, and all those other things. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and, you know, there's a lot of preaching like that today. What is the gospel? The gospel about God is on your side. All you need to do is think positive thoughts. Make sure you don't have negativity around you. Just think high thoughts and God will take you up to him. Just, you know, uh, God, God's there for you. He's your life coach. God wants you to succeed. Now, there's some truth to that. God is for you and your welfare. Though you walk through the valley, the shadow of death, you don't need to fear any evil. Not because God will take you out of the valley, but because his rod and his staff are with you and they comfort you. But the devil will will tell this half-truth. Oh, God just wants you to be happy just the way you are. Why, why you don't need to worry about anything. Just go blindly on. You know, life is wonderful. And you live that way and you never learn and you never know about how sin can be taken away. So those are two half-truths distortions. But let me tell you, the wrath of God and the grace of God, they come together in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's there on the cross that God's wrath on our sin was poured out on his son, Jesus Christ. And the wrath we deserved was put on Jesus. And the righteousness of Christ that he lived was put on us. You may have heard about that. It's called the sweet exchange. (laughs) And there on the cross, the whole truth, our sin deserves death. God's grace gives us life through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So when, when we're talking about put on the, the, the gospel armor of truth, you know, the belt of truth, we're talking about putting on this gospel truth that deals forthrightly with our sin, but also speaks of and offers the grace of God through faith. And so I, I would just invite you, you know, put on the belt of truth. Be surrounded by truth. Gird up your loins with truth, if you King James. And the way you do that, first of all, you have to listen to the truth. Listen to the truth. Now, we don't want to listen to the truth. There's a great theologian uh, whose name escapes me, um, but he said, you can't handle the truth. (laughs) And uh, the fact of the matter is a lot of times we can't because the truth hurts. And, and, and we want to live in denial. We, we don't want the truth to really govern our lives. We'd like something else to govern our lives. You know, so, so we deny what the truth is, and we make up little, little fantasies about why it's not really true for us. Debbie and I were in an opportunity the other week to, uh, to share a banana split. We had not had a banana split in decades, I think. Maybe here at church or something, because they're okay here at church. <laughs> Now, the truth says a banana split has about 3 million calories. Okay, I exaggerate. Two and a half million calories. And we're looking at that and saying, well, we asked for a small one. And a banana is a fruit. You know, by the time we whittled that thing down to about two, 300 calories, that's all it could be. And we didn't eat all of it because we were embarrassed to actually get the last part of it. But we didn't eat all of it. And it doesn't matter what we thought. The calories are still there. By the way, what you do in the magic kingdom doesn't stay in the magic kingdom. It comes home with you. (laughs) 
But you have to listen to the truth, and sometimes the truth hurts. The, the rich young ruler came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, you know, what, what's the greatest commandment? You know, what is it that I really need to do so that I can nail this thing of a relationship with God? And uh, they, they sort of had a conversation together, and they agreed, well, it, it would be nice if you kept all the commandments. Check, got that. It would be nice if you kept the greatest commandment, love God with all your heart, your soul, mind, and strength. Got it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That, that seems like a good thing to do. The scripture says that Jesus looked at this young man who was keeping all the rules. It says he loved him. He said, you know, there's just one thing you like. By the way, because Jesus loves you, he tells you the truth. He said, one thing you lack. You need to go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor because it's your wealth that's making you ask questions like this. As you sort of suspect you're not where you need to be. And it's your wealth that's the problem. It's not commandments. It's not obedience. It's, it's your money. It's your stuff. And that hurt. It hurt the young man. It says he went away sad because he had great wealth. Actually, great wealth had him. He went away sad because the truth hurts. You don't want to deal with the truth. Or you're you like Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor who tried Jesus in one of his trials uh, leading to crucifixion. And uh, Pontius Pilate and Jesus were in conversation during the trial. And uh, Pontius Pilate says, well, what about this kingdom thing? And Jesus says, well, in point of fact, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were just like your kingdom, my disciples would have fought off your disciples and your soldiers, and I wouldn't even be here. I wouldn't have been delivered over to the hands of the Jews at all. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pontius Pilate says, well, then you're a king of some kind? And if I may translate it, Jesus basically said, you got it. You said that I'm a king. You said it. But from now on, if you want to see the kingdom, you're going to have to come to the truth. And those who love the truth will listen to me. And Pilate sort of suspected that if he swallowed that, if he actually accepted that Jesus is the one that you have to listen to if you're going to have the truth in your life, he didn't really like that very much. He didn't want to argue with him. Probably knew he would lose the argument. So he did what so many of us do. What's the truth? Who knows what the truth is? How can you know what the truth is? You can't prove anything. Why? Why? The truth is just out there. It's a fuzzy thing. What, what is truth? Pilate did this because he had just finished his sophomore year in college. That point where you're so wise that you know nothing is true, and that's, that's sort of moronic. But Pilate said, I won't even deal with the truth because it hurts. But there was somebody else who heard the, tr- the truth from Jesus. It hurt. The woman at the well in Samaria, Jesus came in the middle of the day and she came out to draw water in the middle of the day and nobody else was there. So Jesus said, can you give me a drink? She says, what are you doing? Asking me for water. He says, I can give you living water. They fell into conversation uh, and they talked about a lot of things, a lot of theological things. But at the conclusion of it, Jesus said, look, why don't you, why don't you go home and bring your husband back? And she said, oh, I, I don't have a husband. See, that was the problem. That's why she was there in the afternoon. Everybody knew what her life was like. She didn't want the gossip and people talking about her. 
She said, oh, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, you, you know, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And your living boyfriend right now, you're not married to him. And that hurt. That hurt because every time somebody told a story like that in the village, it hurt. Every time she went out and people looked at her and they knew that story, it hurt. Jesus said, your life's not where it needs to be. It hurt. Well, what she did was she got up and she ran into the village. You remember this, don't you? John chapter 4. She runs into the village and she says, Hey, everybody, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. And I, I still don't know why they didn't say, Right, we know what you've ever done. You know, everything you've ever done. No, 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 no you don't understand. Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done and yet he still accepts me. And he still offers me something called the grace of God. Come see a man who knows everything about me. And as much as it hurt, he heals it. Come see this man. And the village came out and they realized that this Jesus is no ordinary fellow. And it says they believed on him and it was tremendous ministry there. But she heard the truth and the truth hurt and she was changed by the truth. To put on the belt of truth, the gospel of truth, I want you to listen to the truth. Even when it hurts, even when it shows you some things that aren't very pretty, even when it shows you some things that, you know, you know I, I've, I've been working that, on that my whole life, and I've almost given up, and the gospel says, no, you keep pressing on. You may not get there in this life, but you'll, you'll, you'll be clothed in glory when you get to heaven. You keep pressing on. Listen to the truth, and then receive the truth. Actually receive the truth. John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. That's the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, I suspect that Satan has a little eraser at the end of his pencil, and he would love to get into your Bible and erase that little word, the, three times. He's not the way, he's a way. He's not the truth, he's a truth. He is not the life, he is a life. That's how Satan would lie about it. But Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And you receive the truth by receiving Jesus Christ into your life. As sovereign Lord over your heart. And as the one who saves you from your sins. And cleanses you from all unrighteousness. To receive the truth. Receive Christ into your life. And then live the truth. Now we talk about a moment of truth. That's really, mo those, those are moments when you, you decide, am I going to live the truth or am I going to live a lie? Happened in the life of Joshua after he had uh, been with Moses and they, they had led the children through the wilderness and then through the ministry of Joshua, they entered into the promised land and they, were, um, they conquered the promised land or displaced the people, however you read that. But at, at the end of all that, at the end of jo the book of Joshua, Joshua turns to the folks after they've had this tremendous victory in the promised land. And Joshua says, look, folks, you're in a moment of truth now. Choose this day whom you will serve. Now, you can serve the gods of Egypt. You can serve the gods of your fathers on the other side of the river. You can serve the gods of, of the Canaanites that you're, that you're displacing. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If all the rest of you go somewhere else, we will serve the Lord. If everybody on the planet turns away from God, we will serve the Lord. 
That was a moment of truth. He put his life on the line. You know what I'm talking about when I say the Hebrew children? It's a phrase we use to talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're called the Hebrew children. Uh, they were young men. They were taken to Babylon, and, and in, the king, in the court of the Babylonian king, they were sort of being trained to be administrators and government officials and so forth. But one of the things that happened was the king said, look, whenever you hear music and the drums and the lyre, and, and, you know, all, whenever you hear the music, I want you to bow down and worship this idol that I've set up. So every time there was music, everybody fell down, and they worshiped this idol, except the three Hebrew children. Now you know why we call them the three Hebrew children. It's because it's easier to say than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But anyway, the, the, but they wouldn't do it. So they're called before the king. The king says, what is this? I told you to worship this idol, and you won't do it. You either do it, or I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. I found out what a fiery furnace was the year I was working in a hospital one summer between college semesters. Uh, it was, one of my jobs was to take the, um, uh, the, 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 the refuse in the red bag. What is that called? The contaminated, whatever it is. You know what it is. Bad stuff. But I had to take the little red bags of trash. By the way, with the needles poking out of it. But I had to t- take the, the, the little red bag of trash. And... Uh, and, and put it in the incinerator down in the basement of the hospital. And this was a humongous iron box that was blazing with fire, and the door was kept open because you couldn't get close enough to open the door. In fact, you couldn't get within about five, ten feet of this incinerator. It was just that hot. That's so it could get rid of all the red bag trash. And so what you did was you stood about five to ten feet away from the door, and you took this big bag of, of radioactive trash and you threw it through the door most of the time (laughs) and if you missed the door that was just too bad (laughs) the good thing was it was so hot it burned there right in front of you anyway now that was a fiery furnace and so uh, uh, the the king of Babylon says to the three Hebrew children he says uh, look I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace if you don't bow down and worship and they said look king let's get something straight Our God is able to deliver us from this. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know we will not serve your God, only ours. Now that was a moment of truth. They put their life on the line for the truth of God. There was a guy by the name of Thomas. He was a disciple of Jesus. And the day came when uh, they were outside of Jerusalem and Jesus said well I'm going to go to Jerusalem and all the disciples said Jesus don't go they want to kill you and they did I mean this, this is the journey to Jerusalem where ultimately he's arrested and crucified and so uh, uh, Jesus says well I'm going to Jerusalem don't do it Jesus they're going to kill you Jesus says well I'm going and he gets up and he leaves the guys are stuck there they're just looking at each other and the guy you know is doubting Thomas says to his friends Let us go with him that we also may die. There's a moment of truth. You put your life on the line. And so when Paul says, you know, put on the belt of truth, it's the gospel truth, the truth of the gospel, that God saves us by his grace. We appropriate it through faith and for a life of works that glorify the Father. And we need to receive Christ and make him Lord of our lives. 
and then live for him and live out that truth every day. Now you say that's going to be hard, and it will be hard. I mean, one of the hardest things of, of living the truth is that the truth really does hurt, especially when it shines a spotlight on, on some of the less beautiful things in our lives. But Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He didn't say that so libraries would have something to write over the door. He said that because the truth of the gospel sets you free from the tyranny of sin. And so I, w- I would invite you this week to just look at your life. Look at those places. You know, be aware that you know, when a moment of truth comes where you have a, an opportunity, live for the truth or live a lie, that you live the truth of the gospel. Identify an area of your life where you're living a lie and you need to live out the truth of the gospel. And then confess it to God and he sends his Holy Spirit into your life. This is why we believe in the Holy Spirit. You know, these things are not possible with us. But all things are possible with God because he sends his Holy Spirit into our lives to accomplish these things. So my plea with you, my challenge to you this morning would be to put on the belt of truth. Let's bow together in prayer. And Father, how thankful we are that this is not a matter of our achievement nor a matter of our uh, attainment, but Father, simply a matter of your grace working in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. We're so thankful for that grace. Pray now that we would be open, receptive, that we would be excited about our lives taken hold of by your hand and our lives changed by the power of your Spirit and our lives conformed to the truth of who Jesus is. That, Father, indeed, we would be living the truth rather than living the law. Father, I ask this for your glory, all in the name of Christ. Amen.